going to invite you to go ahead and make your way to your seats. We're going to begin as we often do, singing with our kids, kind of for our kids. So I invite uh, all of God's children, young and old, um, to join me in song. See the birds that are singing in the spring air They're giving everything they need They don't worry about where we come from They don't worry about a thing So just look around you And give a listen to the song so quiet all of a sudden. Um, it was loud like two minutes ago, and then Chad started playing for us, just brought us into a place of peace. And so, yeah, we're not worried anymore. God made everything, so we're, we are good. And so, hey, it's good to see everybody this morning. Good to see your faces. Um, good to see those uh, that are joining us on Zoom. Thanks for, for being a part of Christ City Church. Um, while we love what we do uh, this morning, while we come together in this place as the faith family, uh, we don't believe this is church, right? And so this is the church coming together um, to do what the church does, which is set their minds, attention, and hearts, affections upon Jesus and follow Jesus throughout, the, throughout our lives, right? Throughout our work days, throughout our work weeks, um, throughout uh, roommates, living with roommates and with family and parenting and all the, all the things in between. We want to be a people who follow Jesus, and that's what we desire to be. But we know as a people that we need moments like this where we can step out of our normal rhythms into a place and a time where we can set our minds, attentions, and hearts, affections upon Jesus. And that's our desire today is to do that, to worship him in song and in scripture, in um, uh, truths being spoken to us from the scriptures, truth being spoken to us as people in our faith family have listened to the Holy Spirit on our behalf um, to share with us, to encourage us to be ones who go out of this context uh, into uh, just being people who follow Jesus, um, who do that together in gospel community uh, with others who uh, we don't think that's just something we can do by ourselves, but something that it requires us to be in relationship with others. And so it's a privilege to do that together as Christ City Church, to come into this space as a collection of gospel communities so that we might leave this space and follow Jesus in the ordinary, everyday um, realities of our life. And so to that end, um, um, knowing what is before us this, this morning, uh, will you do this with me? Will you ask the Spirit to be present with us, uh, for us to be present to his presence, um, so that we might actually be ones who, who worship him uh, and who in worship him are transformed by him. We pray with me. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. 
Lord, that um, even in the rain of today, Father, Lord, we're reminded of, um, Lord, the fresh refreshment of, Lord, your grace that is poured out on us through your Son, that both cleanses all that is, um, Lord, covered in dirt and dust, and at the same time feeds and nourishes um, life. So help us as we enter into this space, wherever we've come from, whatever we have to go to, Father. Lord, what's going on in our lives, the difficulties, um, the opportunities, um, Lord, the, the fears that we have, the, um, Lord, the excitement that we have. Help us in, to bring all those things here before you and to together be with you. So this coming week, Father, Lord, we might be ones who see you and recognize you in each other throughout the week, in our coworkers, our neighbors, our family, our friends, ones who worship you with our lives. All this we ask because you told us to, because your son, as we'll say today and we'll see today, Father, Lord, stands at the door and knocks. Because we've invited him in, we dine with him and he with us. So it's in his name we pray. Amen. To enter into or help us enter into a time of worship, we've asked Cohen to come and read a psalm for us. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in this sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. I invite you to stand and sing. As, as Cohen just read for us. Sometimes life feels a little dry And in a, God meets us So we'll just sing together this morning Of how God satisfies our desires And raises us up to new life You're the resurrection that we've waited for Buried the night Came with the morning You're the king of heaven Yeah, the praise is yours Longer the quiet the Louder the chorus springtime 
You're the living water God, we thirst for you The dry and the barren The flower and bloom You're the sun that's shining You restore my soul The deeper you call us Oh, the deeper we'll go We will sing a new song the winner, you sing a new song, then hallelujah, flow like a river, we're coming back to life, reaching towards the light, your love is like springtime. If you have little ones, um, I want to go ahead and invite you. You can go ahead and head on back um, this morning. It's if you're, No one here is new, so I think we should be fine. If you're not taking little ones um, back, then just hang out and sing with us. There is a sleep. There is a rise drawing me toward light from my eyes, the clear eyes. 
before you in prayer and in worship and in song. We wait for your word to speak truth to us. Lord, comfort us in the midst of suffering. Humble us in the midst of plenty. And Lord, set our hearts, minds, our hearts, affections, and our minds' attention on you. In Christ's name, amen. Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22 says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thank you, Rebecca. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Revelation 3, where finishing out um, what's been a season for us of listening to the pastoral words of Jesus to his church, um, to the seven churches in the first century, and by God's grace to our church um, today. And um, this final word, this last word, um, is spoken to a family of faith at a time and in a place um, not too dissimilar from our own. Um, in this prophetic word from Jesus, he addresses his disciples in a context where they could seemingly meet all their needs and beyond. Um, they had before them in this city um, access to anything and everything that they needed for life in the fullness of life. The idea of submission, of desperation, of want were just that. They were just ideas for most of the people in the Laodicean church and the people of Laodicea. They were not a daily reality. You see, Laodicea, um, this, this church was, again, the last one on our little kind of horseshoe circle around um, what is eastern Turkey um, today. Um, this, this city um, is a lot like all the other cities in regards to its political history, its uh, religious identity as a, a Roman city, um, a city that had loyalty to the Roman um, Empire, a city that had a plethora of divinities that they worshipped and that they um, had some sort of way of working into the normal everyday flows of life. There's also a large Jewish community within uh, Laodicea, um, somewhere upwards of 7,500 men that we know of. So um, you extrapolate that out with the families and children and you probably get about three or four times that um, in the city, which is a large population. 
Um, and, but really, there's nothing that distinguishes Laodicea from the other cities in regards to its culture and its context, other than um, of all the cities, this city was, was placed primarily because of its geographic context. Um, it, was, it wasn't uh, a city that was built along a river or along a lush area. It was a city built um, at what was considered a knot of roads. <laughs> the roads that we looked at a couple weeks ago in Philadelphia, the road to Phrygia to the east, this was the first city in Phrygia. This was the first city in this, this vast region. And, and within it, it became uh, one of the major pass-throughs uh, for trade within the region. And so because of that, um, it became a very wealthy city, um, a city uh, whose wealth was primarily built on banking. Um, and so, um, so there was, there was, it was a city that kind of had everything that it needed um, uh, in regards to financial services. Um, there was lenders, there was creditors, there was uh, all kinds of banking institutions and all those things. And, um, and this was Laodicea. Um, and then... Within Laodicea, there was a, um, um, an industry of clothing. Um, they had specifically uh, in Laodicea a very um, crafted wool, a raven black wool that was, um, that was over the generations kind of fostered um, by the sheep herders to, to develop within these, these sheep this special wool because of the water that they drank. Um, it turned their wool uh, just this raven black and it became this kind of treasured industry. And so, um, so within Laodicea, we have this banking, we have this clothing industry, but we also have a medicinal industry. Um, it was a city that um, had a lot to do with medicine, hospitals, all those kind of things, but primarily what it was known for was the Phrygian powder, an eye salve um, that was um, uh, harnessed and a compound that was made there in Laodicea and then kind of shipped out to the, to the world um, to help with um, the difficulty of seeing, to help with puffy eyes, to help with all those kind of things. Um, uh, it became known for this place that was um, a place of wealth in banking, a place of wealth and um, success in clothing industry, a place of healing, especially around this Phrygian powder. And it was so rich, in fact, that, um, that unlike the cities we've looked at before that were destroyed by earthquakes, just like them, it was in a similar region where earthquakes happened. Um, when it was destroyed in, in AD 60 or so, um, it, it actually used no support from the Roman Empire to rebuild itself. In fact, it refused to be rebuilt by um, the powers that be and took it upon themselves, the wealthy and the, the, just the normal citizens took it upon themselves to rebuild the city. And they didn't just rebuild it, they actually rebuilt it bigger and better um, it was more luxurious after the, the, their personal rebuild than it was before, which was a pretty incredible thing at the, the time um, in history. So wealthy was the city um, that, it, it was, it, that it was able to be independent in this um, disastrous earthquake, but it also, also within the city became one of the few cities that actually saw its citizens become kings. <laughs> The, uh, the Xenoid family um, actually was able to essentially buy their kingship um, by the time this letter is going about. And so in Laodicea, we just have this, we have a city that just, again, it has everything it needs. It's independent. Um, it has its own economic system. The, the economics of the region revolve around it. It has its own industry. It has its own healing, like everything physically, economically, industrially is needed is found within the city. And yet, at the same time, it was a pretty vulnerable city. Um, it was vulnerable because of it needed aqueducts. 
So again, the city wasn't built on, on a river, a, a normal kind of built around a body of water, which would be normal for the time, right? That's where the cities kind of popped up um, because you needed a water supply. Um, but six miles away to the south uh, was, their, was their water supply. So they built these huge aqueducts. This is actually a picture of the aqueduct today. Like it still runs from, uh, from about six miles south of the city to uh, where Laodicea lays today. And so it was pretty vulnerable to both weather um, and also invaders, like enemies, right? And so um, if somebody wanted to siege the city, all they had to do was cut off the, the, the aqueducts and they could put the city under siege, right? So there's this kind of weird mixture of this city is super independent and yet really vulnerable, kind of exposed. And so this was the city of Laodicea. Um, and it lay with kind of in this valley of, of a city that you might recognize. Laodicea laid in the Lycus Valley. I think we have a, an image of it. There you go. The Lycus River Valley. Um, and it shared a region within sight of Heropolis and within walking distance to Colossae. Um, they were called sister cities. These three cities formed what, what we would say are sister cities. And what we see in our scriptures is sister churches. In fact, um, all these churches were founded, by, as far as we know, by a man named Epaphras. And I'm sure others um, in the faith who were, who were with him, who, um, who were following Jesus. But Paul specifically names Epaphras in Colossians chapter 1 as one who's diligent, uh, who started the Colossian church. Um, and then later talks to Epaphras, um, says, mentions about Epaphras, his involvement in Laodicea and Heropolis and in the faith families within the, that region. Um, in fact, um, he even says at the end of the book of Colossians, Paul does, that he wrote a letter to Laodicea, but we don't have that letter anymore. He encourages the Colossians to read their letter from him to them to Laodicea, and in turn to read the letter that he wrote to the Laodiceans to the Colossians. And so there's this interrelationship of these three cities, and they kind of, they kind of walk hand in hand, and, and really kind of here's why. Um, there's the sister cities um, um, had something really interesting about them. They each had kind of a unique source of water. Um, in, in Heropolis, um, which was just across the kind of the valley from Laodicea, there stands 300 foot plus foot, uh, foot tall white cliffs. And atop these white cliffs are hot springs that you can actually still, this is a view from um, not too long ago from it. You can actually still go to the next slide, I think shows like people still today go to these cliffs. Like you can still go to the cliffs of Heropolis and to the hot springs of Heropolis and, 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 and bathe in them. They were known for the region for their healing power, um, for their healing effects. There's lots of medicinal purposes. There's all kinds of, as you can tell, minerals as the water overflows and then calcifies into these giant wise cliffs and are just extremely beautiful. Um, but, but they have a purpose, right? There's the heat of the pools was meant in some ways for healing, for um, the resolve of ailment. And then, just down um, about 10 miles to the east, is Colossae. Um, Colossae didn't have hot springs. It actually had cold springs. They were the, actually the only cold springs in the region. So the water that would come up, and this is actually just right outside of what is modern-day Colossae, um, there's these springs of just gushing cold water. And it was the only cold water in the region. Uh, and so there's a reason Colossae was founded around these springs, um, it gave refreshment and access, life, really, because you couldn't really drink the water in Heropolis, right? The hot water, it was, it was healing, but it wasn't really refreshing. Um, it, would, it would be healing for you, but it wouldn't sustain you, right? And so, but Colossae, Colossae was where the water that gave you life was. This is where the water that, that, um, um, that refreshed you, allowed you to, to go on to the next path of the road, to the next city, and all those kind of things. 
But right kind of in the middle of Heropolis and Colossae is Laodicea. And there in Laodicea, um, the water's tepid. It's lukewarm. The water that they had a pipe in water from a source six miles away because the overflow from their Heropolis hot springs, as they, it would cool as it made its way down the cliffs and into the underground um, water systems near Laodicea. And then where they would find it in Laodicea in its natural way, it was cool but not cold. And it still had the minerals within it, but no longer because of the lack of heat were the minerals for, good for anything except to create a bitter taste and an upset stomach. And so Laodicea had lukewarm, tepid water that literally, if you drank it, you would spit it out. They had to get water from, from somewhere else. And so to a faith family who, once again, like Sardis, faces no named opposition. In this letter, this is one of the two letters that have no named opposition to the, the people of faith. The pressure comes from, um, from them lacking distinction in their time and place. The pressure comes from looking more like the city than their Savior. And to this city, to this, these people, Jesus reveals himself in the most challenging and inviting way of all the seven letters, I think. If you go, again, look in your scriptures in verse 14, this is how Jesus describes himself. He says, to the church, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. If you remember at the end of the, to the letters to the church of Philadelphia, Jesus promises this. He says, to the one who conquers, I will write on him my new name. In the beginning of Laodicea, the letter to Laodicea, we have that name. The name's Amen. Amen. Um, amen is a name of binding authority. Literally, it means so be it. Truth. It is true. That's what amen means. That's what Jesus is. He is God who is the faithful and true witness. That's what the next couple of words mean there, that he's the amen, the faithful and true witness in parentheses is in a way for the Greek uh, listeners to, to recognize what amen means because it's a Jewish word. It's a Hebrew word. Again, a word that means so be it, that Jesus is the so be it. Jesus is the binding authority of God. Jesus is the faithful witness and true witness of God. In Jesus Everything that is about God, all of God's promises, all of God's character, are true and valid, binding. Amen. And Jesus is not only is he the amen, but he's also the beginning of God's creation. The, the word beginning there also means ruler. It's this idea of, of preeminence, right? If you remember Paul's letter to the Colossians when he talks about who Jesus is to them, that he's the firstborn of all creation, that he's the one who sustains life and has made life and keeps life going, the firstborn from the dead who brings new life, because Jesus is the one who's preeminent. Jesus is the solid amen, the end summation in the beginning of life once and life forever in God. Listen, this, this idea of, the, of Jesus as the amen in the beginning has an Old Testament history. It's, Jesus didn't just make this up. Um, he, he fits this in the context of Isaiah 65, which I want to read for us. And as I read Isaiah 65, 10 through 18, just keep in mind what, what Rebecca read to us, this letter in the Laodicean church and what's going on within their church and then the way Jesus describes himself and what he's trying, how he's trying to describe himself connects to their life. It says in Isaiah chapter 10, or Isaiah chapter 65, verse 10, it says, Sharon, which is a valley, 
uh, in the eastern part of, of, of Israel, in the same kind of geographic area, somewhat near like what you would kind of see this area. So it's, in, it's this valley that's most, supposed to be a plentiful valley. And Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks, in the valley of Accor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. So God is saying, listen, I'm going to create this place for you to dwell, this beautiful place for you to dwell, this flourishing place for you to dwell. Again, a place where herds can lie down. Remember, the industry of Laodicea is a shepherding industry, an industry of raising flocks. This is what they sought. They sought to be in a valley of prosperity and of, and of flourishing. Before you who forsake the Lord, it keeps going, who forgot my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fills cups, of mixed wine with destiny. In other words, for people who wanted to be with God, but who decided instead that they were going to go after some other vision of life. Future and destiny. He says, I will destine you to the sword, and all you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. What's Jesus going to say to the church of Laodicea in in just a minute? I counsel you. I've spoken to you. I've said these things to you. Will you listen? The people in Isaiah, they didn't listen, right? But you did, you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servant shall eat and you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Shame's going to be a big word that comes back to us as we go through the rest of the letter. Behold, my servant shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for the breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death, but his servants will call by another name, so that he who blesses himself, and this is the important part, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by, in the ESV it says, by the God of truth. In the Hebrew, it's the God of amen. You will bless yourself. Why? Because God is said it. Because God is the foundation. Because God is it. Because you're built on God. Because you will be blessed because God blesses. You'll be blessed because God made you so. You'll be blessed because you listen, not because of something you did on your own, but because simply of the truth of God, the God of amen. You will bless yourself because God is blessed and is said so. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, the God of amen. He who swears an oath, he who says, I will do these things, will do these things only because God is amen. Not because he's amen, not because you have the ability, not because you have all that you need, but because God does. Why? Because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. Let me hear that. Like in this text that Jesus is referring to that would have come to the minds of the Jewish hearers and Laodicea, some 8,000 to 27,000 of them, depending on the numbers, that there would, have, there would have been, they would have heard in this amen, both this grounding in God for life, for the blessing of life, for the functionality of life, but also for the forgiveness. Because the former things are forgotten. What former things? Their rebellion, their lack of listening. Those things will be hidden from my eyes. And then and Isaiah finishes this way. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. I create. God's the one who is the new beginning. To a city that thought that it created itself. Recreated itself anyway, right? 
It paid for its own, its own uh, remaking to be bigger and better. It's God who created. I create the new heavens and the earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that, I, in, in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be gladness. Everything that's caught up in the, in the letter to Laodicea is wrapped up here in Isaiah 65. This tension of being kind of called to the mat for not listening, for not looking like Jesus. And at the same time, in this being called to the mat, an invitation to rest on what Jesus is, what Jesus has done, what, who God is, what God has done, in the life that he promises. So who, who, is, who are the people of Laodicea? I think it's important for us to notice in verse, verse 15, it says, I know your works. They're a church. Laodicea is a church. These aren't, a, these aren't the people who have been so amalgamated to the culture that they're not worshiping Jesus in some way. That they're not following Jesus in some way. They gather together. They come together in the name of Jesus they, they functionally are a gathered people who are following Jesus. Jesus addresses them as such. So they're a church. But they were ineffective in their calling. We keep reading. It says, You are neither cold nor hot. What that you are either cold or hot? So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Again, in context, what Jesus is saying is that you're not, you're not effective in your calling of being a Jesus follower, of being a church. You're not, you neither bring healing like the hot waters of Heropolis, nor refreshment like the cold waters of Colossae. The lukewarmness is not their spiritual temperature, as we might have heard growing up with this text, or might have heard it used a thousand times. Certainly, like as we'll see, that their, their fervor for Jesus is not what it should be, Right? He encourages a zealousness within them. But their issue is an ineffectiveness in their calling. That their faith, their works that Jesus sees doesn't actually produce anything. It's tepid. It's no good. It's worthless in his kingdom. They pursued some other vision of life with God that was not life as he intended. Not life that he says it was. Not the fruit that he asked them to bear. The same fruit that we've seen in all these seven letters of faith, love, service, and patient endurance. The same fruit that's been, been told to be held on to, the same works that have been told over and over again to hold on to. They didn't have those. They were lacking in those. It wasn't because they didn't desire to follow Jesus. It wasn't because they didn't consistently, in some way, have a, a setting of following Jesus. It was because they looked too much like their city like the source of life in their city. And that source of life in their city was actually not life. It was tepid. They were ineffective and tepid because of complacency, of living out of self-sufficiency. That's what we keep, that's what we read in verse 17. Jesus says, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Why is, why is it that they're getting it wrong? Why is it they're missing something? They're missing something because, again, their idea of what life with God looked like 
They thought they had achieved it. They, they thought they had, they had arrived. They had a life in which they really, the city didn't need anything. And so in some ways, in some way, the Christians of Laodicea were reflecting that. That they, they kind of had it all figured out. They had arrived to where they needed to go. They were, they were prosperous. They, they had um, clothing. They had medicine. They had, they had kind of everything they needed. And it translated even into their, their vision of what life with God was meant to be. They lacked desperation. And honestly, more than anything, they lacked wisdom. For not only were they a church that was ineffective in its calling, they were a church who were blind and foolish. For not seeing what is real about themselves, and as we'll see about Jesus. For he says this, he says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Not realizing what you really are. But get this. Not only does, is this church blind and foolish, not only are they ineffective in their calling, but just skip down for me for a moment because I think it's important. They're also loved. Verse 19 says, Those whom I love... I reprove and discipline. No matter what we think of Laodicea, no matter our contempt for Laodicea, no matter how, th- how foolish we think they are to think that, um, listen, if I just have everything that the culture says I need, that I'm good. Um, I have everything that the, the religious culture says I need, that I'm good. No, no, no matter what we think about them, no matter what we think Jesus would say to them, having described them as something that should be spit out of your mouth, um, this tepid foul water, they are still loved by him. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Of all the cities, like we, we Philadelphia is loved, uh, Ephesus has love mentioned in it, all these kind of things, but we would think that of all the cities, this one would kind of be left off of the loved ones. They're neither hot nor cold. They, they're like Jesus wants to spit them out of his mouth. That's pretty, it's a pretty clear indication of what we think he thinks of them. But what he really thinks of them is that he loves them. And listen, this reminds us and should remind us of Jesus' interaction with a rich young ruler in Mark 10. It's one of my favorite texts, and this is one of my favorite verses in, in coming to understand who Jesus is and how he operates with us. If you remember the story, this rich young ruler comes to Jesus. He kind of has everything. He has youth. He has wealth. He's a man of righteousness. He keeps all the Ten Commandments. And as we see after his interaction, the disciples thought he was the very thing that religion was supposed to get you. He was what following Jesus looked like at the end. All the disciples thought so. That's why they asked Jesus after this interaction, uh, so what do we get? Who, who, what, what are, what's in this for us? And so this man who comes up has everything in the world that we would think qualifies him to be one who's called good and faithful, well done, who has all the works, comes up to Jesus, asks Jesus, what do I need to inherit eternal life, to have life now and forever in its fullest? Um, Again, not earn it, inherit it. He's like, I'm a part of the family. I'm an insider. So what what do I need to experience this in the fullness? And listen to these words in Mark 10. It says, and Jesus looking at him. Jesus looking at him. Just imagine that, picture that. Jesus looking at him face to face, eye to eye, 
Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. He looks at him. He loves him. He invites him into life. And what does the man do? Just as we read in Isaiah 65, just as we've seen done in, the, in Laodicea, he says, I've got a lot of other things. And walks off sad. His view of the way of life with God and what, you, what life with God looks like was different than what Jesus invited him into. And it was heartbreaking. Heartbreaking for the man he left, disappointed, but heartbreaking for Jesus. And that's the, the idea that we're supposed to get in Laodicea too. And so this, this church that's foolish and blind, um, that's ineffective in its calling, is not good to, for healing in its community and in its own life. It's not good for refreshment in its community and its own life. It's just like the city and the water of the city, the source of life for the city, even though it was meant to be a source of life for the city. It's just like, the, the, like it. It's no good. It's worthless. It's nauseating and bitter. But it's loved. How amazing is that? That the last letter, a letter that maybe at the end we feel a little bit of reproach um, and a good rebuke from Jesus, but he leaves us with this reality of the rebuke is meant to be for love, out of love, because there's a deep longing for love. And so what does Jesus do for this church? What does Jesus do for this church? Go back into verse 18. It says, I counsel you. To the church, it's poor and pitiable blind and naked. He says, I counsel you to buy from me. He advises them as the one who is the amen in the beginning, the one who is truth, the one who is the, the, the foundation of, of new life. He advises them to buy from him what is his. Buy from me. Look where he's saying to buy from. So what, the Laodicean church was buying from somewhere. They're buying some sort of vision of life with God, some sort of expectation of religion, some sort of expectation of life from somewhere, but they weren't buying it from Jesus. So Jesus counsels them, buy from me, specifically buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. In a city of banking, this would make sense, right? He's, again, Jesus speaks to these people in their context in a way that it hit with them. But this idea of gold refined by fire has a history in our scriptures. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 1.7. He says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Would Jesus ask for them to buy what makes them rich is their faith, a faith that is genuine and tested. How amazing is that? And remember, he's asking them to buy from him his faith. How was the faith genuine and tested? It was genuine because it was Jesus' faith and it was tested on the cross. The faith that we buy, the faith that brings us life, that makes us rich, is not our faith, it's Jesus' faith. He says, come and get it from me. Buy it from me. Take my faith. Let my faith be your faith. How amazing is that? Think about what kind of life we have if we live a life of faith that is Jesus' faith. And not just Jesus' faith, but also white garments so that you may clothe 
yourself in the shame of your nakedness. Not, not only do we buy from Jesus' faith, but if you remember in chapter 1, Jesus is described as the one in white robes. We buy from Jesus his righteousness, his purity. We buy from Jesus the, the view of the Father. There were no longer ones who are shameful and exposed, our hearts rendered open and shown for what they are in their darkness and their depravity and their rebelliousness. But it's clothed in the clothes of Jesus. Not only are, do we buy a faith from Jesus and a righteousness from Jesus and an honor from Jesus, but also a salve. Again, in a place known for its, its eye medicine, Jesus says to them, and a salve to anoint your eyes at the end of verse 18, so that you may see. We're invited to buy from Jesus a concoction of healing that leads to true sight. To his sight. To see as he sees. I get the image, at least when I read it, of Jesus spitting in the dirt, making this mud and putting it on the, the eyes of the blind man, and then rubbing them off. And for the first time, he sees. This is what Jesus is offering the church of Laodicea, the tepid ones, the ones that are lukewarm, who he wants to spit out of his mouth. He advises them to come to him and buy all these things without cost. There's the idea of, of two things happening here. It's the idea of going and buying to him. There's an idea that, like, I need to go get that from him. But there's also this idea of dignity, of that you can buy it from me, that I'm not just handing this out to you. But, but I'm giving you the opportunity to come and purchase it from me. And what is the per, what, how do we purchase it from him? With just our lives. We come and get it from him. Our lives is how we purchase it. Because, because now we're rich and now we're clothed and now we can see. We trade our life for his life. That's the image that Jesus is wanting the Laodiceans to hear and I think us as well. So he counsels them and he reproves them as we've already read in verse 19 to those whom, I, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And this comes from Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. He reproves because he loves. In Proverbs 3, it says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be wary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Again, of all the churches, he delights in Laodicea because he's reproving them. He delights in all the churches, but like to the church of Laodicea, the one with some of the most striking reproof, right? Like hard to see anything good in. He speaks to them specifically words that would be reminded of the reason they get this word from God is because he loves them and because he delights in them already. How amazing is that God? That to the tepid and the lukewarm, he says, I love you, and I delight in you, and I want more for you, so come and get it. And that's the last image he leaves us with. In verse 20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus knocks and he waits. What does he do? He counsels, he reproves, but then he knocks and he waits. His invitation awaits. He stands at the door. He waits to be welcomed in, to be needed, to be invited in to honor and bless and share life with us, with the Laodiceans. 
The idea, especially in this time and place, to share a meal is to share a life. To share a meal is to share the honor. To share a meal is to bind people together. And listen to, the, again, the amazing reality of this is he doesn't force the door down. He doesn't push it onto you. He stands at the door and knocks and waits. He gives us this dignifying reality of, of choice to open and let him in. To let life in its fullness in. To let the amen in the beginning of creation in. To share life with us. What are we to do? We're to be zealous and repent. What does Jesus do? He counsels, he reproves, he knocks, he waits. What do we do? We're, we're supposed to be zealous, passionate, desperate for who he is and what he offers. We're to hunger and thirst for righteousness, like we're in a dry and weary land as we began our service together. No matter what other provisions may fill our sight, we're to be ones who feel like we're in the desert and that all we can think of and all that we need is the drop of cool water from our Savior. That is the kind of passion that he asks for us. That is the kind of passion he commands for us, to be so desperate and longing for him that we don't get blinded by the provisions around us, by the ways that say this is what the good life looks like around us, so that we're actually desperate and longing for life in its fullness through him. And then that old familiar word, repent. That tried and true continuous act of ordinary faith, the turning from what is not Jesus and holding fast to what we have in Jesus. That's to be our life. To be zealous and repent. And then Jesus restates the promise in verse 21. He says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. To the one who, who invites me in, who uh, opens the door, who is desperate enough to come to me to receive what it is that I offer him or her, I give what I've received. Life forever with the Father. Life in his presence. I give participation, not just in view of God, but on the throne with the Son. If we kept reading Revelation, this is the very next image, chapters 4 and 5, are Jesus on the throne. The slain lamb sitting on the throne with the Father. Opening the scrolls that would save the world, that would redeem life and put an end to sin. That's the image we're left with Jesus. King, Savior, Lord, friend, counselor who reproves us out of love and who's waiting for us to follow him fully and desperately so that we might have life in the fullness. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the image of your son that we've come to see these last few months in the Revelation. Both his divineness and his earthliness, his compassion 
um, his hunger and thirst for, for relating rightly to you and to the world, his desire for us. And also, Father Lord, um, often, Father Lord, our desire for lesser things, for things that don't satisfy or um, end up, at least in your sight and in, in the long run, Father Lord, being rather worthless. So help us, Father, as Christ City Church, as we listen to these words, to be ones who are zealous in our desperation for you, in our longing for you, and wanting more of you in our lives, in the lives of our neighbors, in our city. And may we be ones who continuously let go of what we're holding to, visions and images, desires and things that are less than Jesus and holding fast to the amen and the beginning of new life. In his name we pray, amen. you to stand and sing with me. This song will kind of serve as a prayer for us this morning as we hear the invitation that Jesus gave to the rich young ruler um, to follow him. So Lord, will you guide us as, as individuals, as families, as a church? Will you hold us fast as we hold on to you? And Lord, Lead us in your ways and paths of righteousness. Jesus, say, you pardon me.
What might Christ have to say to our faith family today? It's a weighty question, and I will venture only the briefest answers. Christ's city is welcoming and hospitable, and this is good. This is good. Uh, I can attest to this personally. And I believe this pleases God. Um, secondly and finally, uh, Christ City, uh, at least the, the portion of Christ City that lives in my apartment, uh, must, uh, must resolve to be with Jesus uh, more. We must make time each day to strengthen and reinforce our connection to the vine so that we can continue to bear fruit. And uh, with that, uh, let us commune together. Uh, your communion elements are under the chair, under your seats. And I will lead us uh, by reading uh, the prayer. Uh, I invite you to join in with the yellow text. If 
Father God, we stand before you in humble adoration as we set our face to the tasks and interests of another week and season as Jesus' church. Thank you for the blessed assurance that we shall not be called upon to face them alone or in our strength alone, but that at all times we will be accompanied by your presence, strengthened by your grace, and encouraged by your family. Thank you that throughout human life run the footprints of our Lord and Savior, King and Sage, priest and friend, Jesus Christ, who for our sake became flesh and tasted all the different challenges of daily living, as well as the end we need no longer fear. Thank you that as we go about our work and play in pursuit of relationships and aspirations, we can be conscious of the spiritual presence of the heavenly host. Thank you for the saints who rest from their labors, the patriarchs and matriarchs, prophets and prophetesses, apostles, noble martyrs, for all the holy and humble, for our dear departed friends and family who have shown us your way. As we remember them, we bless and adore your great name. We rejoice, O Father, that you have called us to be members of the Church of Jesus Christ. Let the awareness of this holy fellowship follow us wherever we go, cheering us in loneliness, protecting us in company, strengthening us against temptation, and encouraging us to act in love and justice. O Lord Jesus Christ, you have called the disciples to shine as lights in a dark world. In remembrance and repentance, we acknowledge before you the many faults and weaknesses of which we are guilty. We who in this generation represent your church to the world, we as Christ City Church especially acknowledge our part in this brokenness. Forgive us, we pray, the feebleness of our witness, the meagerness of our giving and loving, and the mediocrity of our zeal. Help us live equal in measure to love received, following the one who cared for the poor and the oppressed, such as we. Let us let the strength of your spirit, O Jesus, be in us all to share the world's suffering and redress its wrongs in the fullness of your joy. Through Jesus' life given, we live. Amen. Thank you, Preston, for leading us in communion. I invite everyone to stand as we close in song. As we stand um, with the assurance that we even received from Jesus today in the letter to Laodicea that he loves us, may we respond in kind. With all of my heart, and all 
to come and close us in prayer this morning, and then we'll conclude with a reading from Jude. Let's pray.
Father, let us pour out to you now. We are gathered in the name of Jesus. We're here in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we seek your presence. We worship you, God. You're a God of love, faith, righteousness, honor, and healing. And we thank you for that. We thank you most of all that you love us even with knowing all of our thoughts and all of the ways that we're distracted and we check out and we trust ourselves more than you. We're sorry for that. Forgive us, O oh Lord. Thank you for the way that you love us and you invite us again and again to your table. Let the weight of that invitation, Lord, fall on us fully today as we worship you. Lord, would you search our hearts today and this week and show us where we're finding life, where we're looking for life? Are we looking for it in Jesus or from this world? Father, help us in our unbelief where we see the world as more appealing than your son. Lord, we want to long for you and seek you with desperation, the kind that Jeremy described. But we need your help and your strength to do it. Thank you that you love us so much that you would continue to renew us each day and fill us with the strength come after you. Help us to do that, O oh Lord. We love you. For all these things in Christ's name, amen. Thank you, Ryan. We'll conclude this, this sermon series as we've read together to end each gathering. This comes from Jude, the last couple of verses there, this benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of your weekend. We'll see you next week. Thanks.